Hey friends, welcome back to this week's episode of Fit Friends Happy Hour. I'm your non-diet dietitian, trainer, and host Katie, and this is episode 247. Today, I'm excited to talk to you and bring you our special guest, Lindy, talking all about resiliency. Now, you're probably wondering why resiliency, how does this relate, but it really is a key, what do we call it, characteristic, trait, quality that's really important on your intuitive eating journey. Having resiliency or developing resiliency can also help you to develop compassion and help you stay motivated towards goals when everyone around you might be really deeply rooted in diet culture and you're kind of going against the grain. Lindy received her bachelor's and her master's both in social work from Brigham Young University. She also spent time in California State University. She's lived and worked in mental health everywhere from California to Nashville to Salt Lake City, Utah, really for over 15 years. She is a licensed clinical social worker in the state of Utah, and she provides mental health therapy services and coaching services in addition to her therapy practice. She too has, and she shares a little bit of her story, which I'm really excited for you to hear. I think there's so much power in listening to other women's stories who struggle with body image, self-worth, confidence. And that's really what drove her to get into the work that she does. She really specializes in anxiety, depression, trauma, shame, self-esteem issues, and more importantly, women's issues. Her emphasis is helping women improve their self-worth, their confidence, their body image resiliency. We're going to talk about that today. I'm really excited for you to hear. She has a collaborative approach with clients, and we talk a little bit about the practice that we do and how things overlap and underlap and how a lot of the work that you might do with a dietitian can really be complemented by the work that you do in therapy or vice versa. She helps clients to look into recognizing how common symptoms of anxiety, depression, body image, obsessions can be caused by shame, trauma, and negative self-worth and that inner self-criticism. She enjoys working with clients who are looking for knowledge, skill development, and really resources to better cope with that current situation that you might be in. She focuses on empowering clients to examine their strengths and abilities to become more resilient to their challenges. She also uses cognitive behavioral therapy strategies, if you've ever heard of that, mindfulness skills to help empower clients to feel capable of managing their life circumstances more effectively. Oh my gosh, don't we all need more of that? I know I do. Again, I think you're going to get so much out of today's episode. So take some notes, whether you're listening to this while you're driving, walking, whatever it is. If you've got a minute, maybe you're listening to it while you're cleaning, do a little multitasking, get outside while you listen to this and really think as you listen to Lindy's story, how can I take what I'm learning from today and apply it to my life, to my situation, to help me be more resilient in whatever it is that you're challenging or you're battling today. And as always, if you enjoyed today's episode of Fit Friends Happy Hour, we welcome you to join our free private community. Just click the link in the show notes. We also are doing a sugar challenge at the time of this recording. So all sorts of resources to help you along your non-diet journey. Just check out link in the show notes and we'll see you in the group. All right, on to the show. Welcome to Fit Friends Happy Hour, a podcast about all things nutrition, fitness, and life in your 20s and 30s, all from a non-diet lens. I'm your host, Katie Hake, and I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist and certified personal trainer. 
Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people and experts from all walks of life about their relationship with food and their bodies. I'll also share my experience working with clients in my private practice to help women find food freedom and body confidence. I'm on a mission to help you stop quantifying and start living. Learn to stop measuring your success by the scale and find your fears. Lindy, welcome to Fit Friends Happy Hour. We're so happy to have you on the show. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Let's start by just telling our audience a little bit about yourself, you know, from a personal standpoint, we'll dive into professional as well, but what is your, you know, food and body image story that got you into the work where you're at today? So I have always been in a larger body. I, um, I grew up on a farm in California, grew up pretty active. I started swimming competitively when I was eight, but I was always one of those bigger girls and as I've started getting into this work, Katie, it's really given me time to reflect back on my childhood and some of the things I felt that I didn't quite identify as body image issues, negative self-worth, a lot of self-worth tied to how I performed in school and athletics. But yeah, I grew up swimming. I played water polo in high school. I have always enjoyed being active, but I've always felt self-conscious. I remember as young as 10, feeling self-conscious about swim pictures. Like, you want to take a picture of me by myself in a swimming suit and feeling super self-conscious about that. And then when I was in high school, like I said, I played water polo in California. I was actually on our high school's very first women's water polo team as a freshman. Oh my gosh, Um, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So as a senior, the local newspaper decided to do a story on our water polo team because we were the graduating class of like the first, you know? And so (laughs) I laugh. I have a hideous picture of me playing goalie on the front page of the sports page in high school, where they did a story on all of the seniors that had been playing for four years. And in that story, I talk about like, yeah, I love water polo because any girl could do it. doesn't matter their size. And that's one of my quotes in this story, in this newspaper. And as I've delved into this work the last five or six years, I look back on that and look at that, trying to prove I was worthy enough despite my bigger size. And so it's a lot I've had to do. When I got introduced to Brene Brown in 2013 around shame, my very first thought was, holy crap, I got to do some work around this myself. And so I have had to do a lot of work around self-compassion, loving myself despite my body size. I've done the whole yo-yo dieting. Even in the last five years, I lost a bunch of weight. Then I got pregnant with twins, which gratefully my pregnancy with my twins was pretty mild compared to other people I know. After that roller coaster of things. But I think one of the biggest things I've learned, Katie, over the last five or six years is trying to detach my worth from my weight or my size. And I've learned, I love the word joyful movement. And I've learned to realize wait, there's things that I'm doing because I feel good doing them. And they make me feel happy not because they result in me looking a certain way or being approved by certain people. And that personal journaling is really what's taken me on professionally to really focus on that with other women. I love that you made that connection of, you know, learning to 
disassociate your weight from your worth, right? And recognizing that the two are independent and not dependent on each other. So as you know, of course, hindsight's 2020, did you get into social work and mental health work before recognizing yes. your own body image work or walk us through what was that like for you professionally? Because I know for we do have some listeners who are health professionals and I've had that same experience as well, where you know, we kind of get into this weight-focused approach with health. And then throughout that work, it's kind of this awakening in a sense of, oh my gosh, this this is not the way I want to practice. This is not doing a service to my clients. So what was that journey like for you? Well, you know, what's interesting, Katie, is I've been in mental health for almost 15 years. I have my bachelor's in social work and I have my master's in social work. And when I went to college, I thought I wanted to have the background in swimming and I had been coaching swimming and coaching little kids and adolescents in high school and in college. And I thought I wanted to do recreation management. Um, and I'd taken a class in undergrad and I got introduced to social work. We went on a tour of the YWCA, which is a women's shelter for domestic violence. And I was like, that's what I want to do. So my entry to social work was and mental health was like so opposite of where I am now. But what's cool is with social work, it's a really broad field. And one of the main values of social work is how to serve vulnerable populations that always can't advocate for themselves. And I've had the opportunity to work in areas like I went to graduate school in the Bay Area um, near Oakland. I worked in Oakland. I lived in Nashville, Tennessee for a little bit. My husband and I joke about it being a detour because we moved to Utah from California via detour in Nashville for a little less than a year. And then now I've been in Utah for almost 10 years. So I've had the opportunity. I've worked residential. I've worked crisis team. I've worked hospital social work trauma unit. And then I've transitioned into full-time mental health providing therapy over the last about 10 years. So yeah, no, my introduction to dealing with body image really started with getting introduced to Brene Brown. And I was working with women that had been affected with infidelity and in their marriages. And a lot of them would blame themselves. If I was pretty enough, or if I was this enough, or if I was blank enough, And when I got introduced to that, Katie, that's where I started to realize how it affected my own life and realizing if I want to help other people, I've got to figure this out for myself. And so that took me on a whole journey. But when I got introduced to mental health, Katie, 10, 15 years ago, nutrition and exercise were not regularly addressed in mental health treatment. That was not a norm at all. Yeah, so interesting because obviously we're we're talking now and we we definitely understand the correlation. But I'm I'm curious, talk about a detour. Was there anything that you noticed between working with women in particular and their socioeconomic so not even socioeconomic status, but just kind of where they were at in their life in these different um, you know, I think of somebody in the hospital, right? Where they're at is very different from somebody who's Walking around, you know, living their normal life, functioning daily versus somebody who is at the YWCA seeking, you know, shelter for domestic abuse. Was there a common thread or not? Or what are things that you noticed from kind of that body image, mental health standpoint? I'm curious. That really goes into why resiliency is one of my core values as a therapist and why when I'm looking at building resiliency, I incorporate 
if you're familiar with the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah, and tell us. Maslow's, yeah, talk us through what that what that is for for listeners. So Maslow's, and I have a nice little infograph that I've posted in the past on my Instagram, and I can send it to you so that listeners want to see it. But it's a triangle, and the idea is is the bottom level level is our physiological um, needs, common needs, food, shelter, safety. So, like for example, clients, most of my clients, I can see and pinpoint that there is shame where they don't feel worthy enough, where they don't feel good enough. And a lot of tied with how they feel about their body, especially women, especially women that after childbirth or after some sort of trauma, they, you know, even COVID, right? I know I gained weight through COVID for several different reasons, but there's some shame of, oh, I let myself go. And I see those things from the start, but I do look at how I build resiliency is looking first at where are they in that Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Like you said, if someone doesn't feel safe, if their relationship is threatened, that they feel like they're just surviving day to day, I look at how can I help them feel safe, whether it be, how's your sleep? Are you getting some sort of nutrition besides, you know, I had a client, he was eating fast food all the time. And one of our first goals was, let's eat an apple. And it was actually, he had a lot of suicide ideation. And toward the end, he said, that was one of the things he remembered the most was me suggesting to start eating an apple instead of just all this processed food all the time. So I really try to incorporate when we start the building blocks, the building resiliency and, and getting to the point of where we can look at our internal beliefs about our body, about our relationship with our body and how it integrates into our relationship with others. I do look at the core principles of resiliency that start with, do I feel safe? How am I sleeping? What type of nutrition am I getting and what type of movement am I getting? Yeah. I think that's really maybe an aha moment for anyone listening. If especially you're struggling a lot, sorry for everybody. If you hear a dog in the background, that is, that is, that is life. Life is a podcaster. (laughs) Uh, If you're on your non-diet journey, if you're, you know, struggling in, you know, let's say doing body image work and you're feeling stuck, I think it's a really great place to start. It's like, hold on, let me pump the brakes. Let me zoom out. Are my basic needs being met? Is this even a time where I can address, you know, changes in nutrition, changes in movement, changes in internal work if some of those basic needs? So you talked about having these needs met before understanding kind of resiliency. Can you explain to us what even is resiliency? What does that actually mean? (laughs) And resiliency has become quite the fun topic in the mental health field. And I think Rightly so, because I think, Katie, sometimes historically mental health is known for, let's focus on the problem. Let's focus on everything that's wrong. And yes, we need to learn from the past, but what helps give us strength is recognizing what our resiliency is, recognizing how do I get through difficult things? My favorite Nelson Mandela quote actually says, do not judge me by my successes. Judge me by how many times I fell down and got back up again. So when I share that quote, either in a training, in a group, or individually, I usually ask, what stands out to you? What stands out to you, Katie, about that quote? I think the ability to get knocked down, not not the ability to get back down, but the ability to get back up, to keep moving forward, to keep making progress, regardless of what that looks like. Exactly. And that's what resiliency is, is recognizing 
we're all going to have difficult times. We're all going to get knocked down. It's not about the fact that we got knocked down. It's about how we got back up again and how we keep trying to move forward and adapt in the face of those challenges. Yeah, I love I love that quote. I don't know if it's a quote, but people say it, you know, fail forward. I kind of think of that same thing of it's it's learning and learning from each experience and how do you kind of move forward from that. So, you know, you shared with me that some of the work that you do particular right focuses around resiliency and you've kind of divided it into these different pillars. So, can you talk us through the different pillars or maybe even just some of the action steps that people can take? to help them really build that resiliency in their day-to-day. Yeah. And it's something that as time goes on, I see more and more, and I'm actually building more structure around with my clients of how, even whether it's individual or in a group setting, how we intertwine weekly assignments that are Focus on these four pillars. I want to say one more thing about resiliency, though, because I think it's this important element too. Oftentimes, Katie, a lot of my clients that, so I have a lot of clients that, who come and feel like, I don't know why I'm feeling this way, or I don't know why I'm reacting this way. What's wrong with me? Because they compare their own experience to other people's experience. And so then they don't feel like they should be struggling or should be seeking out help because there's other people that have it worse. Yeah. Can you give an example of that? Someone who's like, just went through a breakup, let's say, and they're struggling with sleeping. They're crying about it, even though they know maybe it wasn't the healthiest relationship for them. They're having memories and dreams about it. They're not eating, they're not exercising, and they just don't feel right. And they think, what's wrong with me? Like so-and-so is going through so much worse and I'm crying over a breakup. So almost like undermining our own experiences and, and feelings of that. I'm not worthy. I, sh- I There's a wrong way to process or to handle the tough thing that you're going through. Exactly. Because we compare it to other people that maybe have a worse experience. So what's my excuse for feeling like this is hard? And so what I like to remind people of is my favorite definition of crisis is that it's when something exceeds our current coping mechanisms and our current support systems. So you're going through a hard breakup. If that person was your main support system, no wonder it's going to be creating some imbalance and challenges for you because one of your biggest ways to cope and build resiliency has just walked out the door. And your mind and body doesn't know different from Mojo down the street. I think about that in the work that I do with clients with nutrition, you know, and they're going through this intuitive eating journey when they recognize that or or they move away from using food as a ways to cope. That's a great word. And I've never thought of it as that word, but they almost do go through a little bit of like crisis kind of management when they recognize, wait a second, food was my thing. That was how I dealt with tough situations. And now that's not there. Very interesting. I love that. Yeah. Food, I've heard it described as food is a safety behavior. Actually, Margot Main, a prominent psychologist who specializes in eating disorders, she talks about that of food is a safety behavior. And yes, so like you said, I see that too. When women are trying to start changing their relationship with food, trying to change their relationship with their own body, one of the fears and things I often hear is this fear of, 
Well, if I let go of that, then what? So that's where the resiliency starts to come in. That helps answer the question, then what? When we start letting go of the behaviors, and like you said, we have to go through some crisis management, knowing the steps and the pillars of resiliency help us know what that next step is. Yeah. So walk us through that. the first step. Yes. So the first step is connections. And there's two components of connections. The first is actually, I really focus on connection with yourself. And this is where I feel like, like I said, when I first got into mental health, the mind-body connection was not prominent in mental health treatment. And we have come to now recognize how important that is. So when I look at connection, I help try to help people get reconnected with their own intuition, with their own body, and recognizing what is going on in their body, right? Like, for example, I know for myself and for a lot of my clients, they crave food when something uncomfortable is happening, when an intense emotion or intense experience or an argument with a spouse or a loved one has happened, then all of a sudden there's this safety in food. And so part of building resiliency so that you don't go to the food for that comfort and safety is recognizing it in your body. So we work on building, where do you feel that? What physical sensations, where do you physically feel it in your body? So that as you learn to recognize those signals, you can ask yourself what's going on right now. So the first step in connection is reconnecting with your own body. Yeah. That, that interceptive awareness of what is actually even going on. What is my body even trying to tell me? I kind of think of almost going back to that Maslow's hierarchy of needs is like, we can't address the, the thing until we recognize what's happening, right? We can't skip that step or jump ahead. Exactly. Self-awareness is half the battle. And one of the things I try to explain to my clients is like, this first little bit, we are going to be focusing on building that self-awareness because you can't really change anything until you see what's going on. And you will feel very empowered once you recognize what's going on. I had a client recently who was like, I found myself eating a couple of Oreos and I caught myself in the moment realizing, what am I feeling right now? I don't really want that. And she was able to connect what emotionally was going on in that moment. Yeah. What, what tips might you have for somebody who is, they're building the self-awareness, right? They're identifying, they're kind of having that conscious awareness. Let's use the Oreo example when they're eating the Oreos, but that kind of triggers them to go negative. Like, do you have any tips for somebody in that moment where they identify the physical feeling, but they're not sure what to do with it? (laughs) That's a really good question. And that's where the resiliency, the four pillars really build on each other. So I think to answer that question, let me just name all four of them. And then I can tell you kind of how it ties in. Yeah, so the first one's connections. And that really, like I said, focus first on connecting with your own body and your own mind and recognizing what's happening in the moment. The second one is personal wellness, which is really is focusing on that Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Where am I with sleep? Where am I with movement? Where am I with my nutrition? The third one is developing healthy thinking and trying to decrease the inner critic. And that's kind of what you were just speaking to. And then the fourth one is finding personal purpose and meaning, being able to bring meaning and value to the experiences you've gone through and recognize what have I learned from it to help me grow and gain wisdom, which is that last step toward resiliency. So like with the Oreo example, 
one of the first steps of then being able to catch yourself in the moment. And like you said, people go negative is to recognize that you're going negative. Mm -hmm. Name it. There's so much power in being able to externalize that inner critic and that negative self-talk, externalizing it as this is my, my inner critic. Or I've had clients be put a name to it, right? This is Mojo or other <laughs> just random yeah. names. Because being able to start to recognize that those thoughts don't make who you are. They are simply thoughts. Mm. Starting Helps to separate us. the numbers, the, kind of going back to our initial conversation is starting to separate the weight from our worth, starting to separate the thought from what you're going through you as a person right now. Exactly. It helps us then start to just observe our thoughts versus be judgmental toward our thoughts. Holidays is a great example. We're, we're meeting the first week of January, Katie and I are, and holidays is a great example. So many women I work with, actually just even this week, so many of my clients, I got to do X, Y, and Z now because holidays are over. And now I feel crappy because I overindulged and labeled I'm bad, I'm wrong. I'm not worthy enough because of what I ate or what I did or what I did not do during the holidays. And now we're trying to work through, I've been working through with a lot of clients this week of, does that really make it that you have to spread yourself too thin right now just because you feel shame and guilt and are being told by outside messages what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing, how you should be acting so that's, again, building that resiliency and trying to change some of that inner self-critic is learning to trust your own tuition, connect with yourself, and be a little bit more assertive in how you communicate with the world. Yeah, connecting with yourself. And it sounds like starting to separate it from where do these messages come from? Separate, you know, okay, well, if I'm not bad, then where where does this thought, where's, what are the things around me that are telling me or contributing to that shame or that guilt. Yeah. That's interesting. So then with that last pillar, can you talk us a little bit more about how that connects to, you know, someone being able to be more resilient, that finding purpose and meaning. Mm -hmm. So one approach to, there's several approaches to treating trauma that have been evidence-based researched. One approach that I really love is called um, narrative therapy. And it historically is done for very specific traumatic events. And over a period of time, you write a narrative of that traumatic event first in just the facts point of view. This is what happened. And then after, and, and I'm talking like I've done this over a six, eight week period with clients where we meet weekly. And then the next is looking at what are your thoughts and feelings as those events happened. And then the third, so then you, the more you connect with that experience that seems so scary in the past, the more you start to realize, what did I learn from this? And that is what brings purpose and meaning is and healing from traumatic events, right? A lot of people, when we start looking at our own body image story, we realize how our fears or our negative feelings about our body image really have shaped relationships, choices we've made, things we've maybe not pursued versus did pursue. And as we start to recognize that, like I said, like healing and recognizing things I did as a child because of my self-worth issues have helped me overcome and take some chances even on myself in the 
last few years that I never thought I would do. So that's where the finding purpose and meaning is. Because a lot of times people get stuck in feeling negative and angry about that past trauma. But if we can take it and find what we learn from it, how it makes us grow, how it makes us become more resilient and become more aware of the next time something happens. For example, I, I'm sure you see this a lot because I see this a lot. Weight stigma in the mental health community, as well as the medical community. I have several clients who avoid going to the doctor. Well, I don't want to be weighed. I'm going to be told the, the solution is weight loss again. They're not heard. They're not trusted. So one of the things we do is take those past experiences and, and help them learn how to be more assertive and help them feel more confident in advocating and not believing just the answers they're given right away, that they can find purpose and meaning in those past negative experiences to be more resilient with this, because they know it's probably going to happen. But now we're going to give them tools, language, and resources of how to face that adversity instead of being scared and avoiding it. Yeah, that's a that's a great example of like that quote you gave in the beginning of getting knocked down, but then being able to get back up. So helping somebody to learn from what it is that you went through that wasn't a pleasant experience was tied to your body or food or just these negative yuck feelings. What did you learn from it? How can you take what you learned to handle something differently in, in the future? Right. Because we all, we all have a body. We all have to eat. Like <laughs> we, 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 by nature, we'll have more opportunities around it. So what are some of the ways that you help your clients and you know your community in particular prioritize their health and their happiness over that weight loss and body transformation? I think probably similar to you, one, when I have clients come in talking about, I want to fix my relationship with food because I want to lose weight and I want to figure out why I emotionally keep eating, I tell them, okay. I'm here to help you work through those emotions. I'm not here to help you lose weight, <laughs> you know, and being pretty honest that that's not my goal as a therapist. And there was a time I thought that's what I wanted to do. Like you said, Katie, so going on my own journey um, has really come back to that. Okay. Health at every size and having some cognitive flexibility in how we think and feel about our relationship with food, about exercise, about life is really important to me. So one thing is I'm really clear with my clients of what to expect, right? And I'm clear with them of like, we start with when you're telling me that you're feeling very negative about yourself, we're going to look at, or you're having depression or anxiety. And it is very much tied oftentimes to how women feel about their body. And oftentimes women think, solve my body, I'll solve the anxiety and depression. So I'm very clear with, we're not going to focus on weight loss. We're going to focus on how do you feel when you eat? How do you feel when you sleep? How do you feel when you exercise? We're going to focus on those things that make you feel good because that's what's going to improve your resiliency. So I'm really clear with them about that. I love doing groups. I had a chance to do a group last year and hoping to do some more this year, just kind of in a transition stage. So um, when the time is right, I find group work so, so, so critical because so many women think they're the only ones that think, feel, and act this way, and other women have it figured out. So when I put them all together, it creates that connection that I can't replicate. Yes, I love it. I'm curious if you have the same experience with your groups. I find in some of my groups, I always point this out to them, like, do you see how 
you know, you're getting hung up on this one step of intuitive eating, whereas somebody else is getting hung up on a different step. Like it's not ever, even though there's, you know, these 10 principles and kind of this, this journey with intuitive eating and body image, like everyone's experience is different. And so it kind of almost gives them a little bit of confidence in a sense too, to recognize, oh, wait, I figured that out. But then at the same time, allows them to share that experience to help somebody out. I love seeing those little connections. Yeah. It's wonderful. And and the truth is, like I said, like I can't replicate that connection and that feeling of, oh, I have a group, I have a community, I have a tribe. I can't replicate that individually with people. And so oftentimes people can make progress more quickly in a group setting than they can individually. It's so. almost like like a I don't have children yet, but I imagine it's the same way of like you tell your kids that you know to do whatever or or this isn't cool. And then finally, when they hear it from a peer, they're like, oh yeah, it's not cool. And you're like, have I not been saying that the entire time? I almost feel that same way as like the clinician. (laughs) Oh, so true. My 10-year-old, almost 11-year-old, if his teacher says it, it's good. If mom says it, no. (laughs) Yeah. Or like as a dietitian with my family, I'm just always like, yeah, you're right. I know nothing. you know. And then they hear it from somebody else on TV, like, did you know? I'm like, yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I love group work. I, I try to explain, like you've asked me through these four pillars of resiliency. I try to really explain to my clients why I take the process I do with them as a therapist. Now, granted, there's twists and turns. And one of the fun things about my job is I think a session might start one place and we end up someplace completely different. But I've been in the field long enough that I recognize common themes And I'm creating a roadmap that I have found to be helpful for the majority of my female clients that are struggling with how they feel about their body, how they feel about their relationship with themselves. And that tends to increase depression and anxiety. And I have flip-flopped it that if we can start healing their relationship with how they feel about their body, how they feel about themselves, the depression and anxiety decrease. But I do that first by let's incorporate healthy habits, like you said, and try to focus on, I have emotional awareness sheets that we use. How do you feel doing that versus what the outcome is? So explaining that process to my clients up front, and as we are going through the first couple of sessions and why I start there versus I have clients that feel anxious and I want to tell you all my childhood trauma. And I oftentimes have to be like, that's great. But like you said earlier, like, let's cool the brakes a little bit. And let's make sure you feel like you can get through a day without having a panic attack. Then we'll get into that deeper stuff because I don't want to open up Pandora's box if you can't get through a day. That's actually very irresponsible as a therapist. And you need to be careful that the therapist you're seeing does know that you functioning wise need to be able to function on a day-to-day basis before you get into that deeper stuff. Because if you open up Pandora's box and they don't have coping skills for the here and now, boom, you're going to trigger a crisis. So it's really important that you know what that foundation is to help take your clients where they need to go. Can you give us some tips or, you know, red flags that someone should look out for when they're seeking help from a mental health provider? Mm -hmm. One thing I would say is we have quite the shortage of mental health providers in the field right now. And that is definitely a big challenge. We also have newer therapists, which is great. But make sure they have proper supervision. 
I think a lot of people don't realize the process it takes to become a licensed therapist. And I provide coaching as well. But to become a licensed therapist, you go through grad school and then each state is a little different, but you typically have to do 4,000 hours under a licensed therapist before you can practice independently, meaning like you can't run your own business until you've done two two to three years postgraduate school under someone who's licensed. So ask people about their supervision experience um, and who they're under. I love that you bring up supervision. And I talk with so many of my colleagues, we almost wish it was a requirement for dietitians as well, because supervision was not even something I was even taught about in school. But now it's something I can't imagine as a dietitian, as you know, doing nutrition work, not <laughs> talking about cases, right? And so I think you bring up such a good point, especially in today's day and age, there are so many, you know, air quotes, health coaches and these coaching type of roles, which are great. Like you said, there definitely is a time and a place for those support people, but recognizing depending on who you are and what it is that you want to work through the level of experience or training that someone might need. Okay. So that's a great one. What, what else do you have for us? Ask them their experience and training with body image eating disorders and what their viewpoint is on diet culture and weight stigma, because it is not something that is addressed in the mental health field. Actually, I was just filling out an intake for one of my clients. And one of the things that's really bugging me on some of the standard intake templates on my new um, system, because it's just like an online electronic health record system. So it's a standard template, not my template. But Katie, it's asking about size and build of the client obese versus under, like all these things that are very, very not necessarily culturally aware around the health at every size approach. And so if you're looking and wanting someone that comes from lens of health at every size, intuitive eating that is aware of fat phobia and weight stigma, you got to ask because it is not, we are not being trained as professionals to really be aware of that. We're being trained of, oh, one of the symptoms of depression is weight gain Mm, with no cultural context to that. So the therapist really engaging in that type of work and understanding the trauma that a lot of people have associated with being judged for their size, both medically, socially, relationship, you have to ask them what their experience and viewpoint on that is because it's still really being taught from a DSM diagnosis lens in the field. Mm. That's a great example too. A lot of providers will have like intake forms on their website or you can access. I never thought about that. If you may, not yours, Lindy though. Take it, take it with a grain of salt because some <laughs> people might not be able to change theirs, but that or even in that initial session, you can see, get a feel for, you know, I have this horrible experience with one of my clients who was in recovery from an eating disorder. And she, at the same time was working with air quotes, a body image therapist who I guess was not (laughs) uh, very much eating, maybe eating disorder informed, but not health at every size, weight inclusive informed. Because this body image therapist basically validated the client's concerns that she needed to lose weight. Yeah. From just like you said, you know, well, weight loss will help with your depression, right? And yeah, it was Mm -hmm. a red flag for sure. 
Yeah. And that's like, and I think that's so important. Like if that's one of the things I wrote was, okay, if they focus on weight loss as a way to solve your body image and Mm. your depression and your anxiety. Now, red flag, right? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. But that's what was like kind of classically, you know, not, not even taught, right? Like I said, this was not, this is newer in the mental health field to really look at how does our physical health and our relationship with exercise and nutrition play into our mental health. That's actually a newer emerging field. And it's interesting because it's something like even 10 years ago, before I even did my, all my own body image work that I started seeing that need. And so one thing I've learned personally, and I do love like a red flag, I said like, yeah, if they're focusing on weight loss, but like I've, I've been a supervisor for the last three plus years and all of the therapists, and these are people coming fresh out of grad school. And I'm teaching them when you start working with clients, address those Maslow hierarchy of needs, address where their sleep is, address where their nutrition is, address where their movement is, you know, and all of them up until like, you know, I just left the group practice last week was my last week. All of them have all expressed to me how grateful they are for that because it wasn't taught to them in school. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Interesting and alarming and important to discuss for sure. As we, as anybody coming into this space, recognizing that there yeah. is definitely a, a spectrum. Mm-hmm. But I think what's great, and I'm sure you see this in your nutrition and your work with exercise. I love the term joyful movement. Love it. And I know Abby Griffith and you talked about this and Abby and I I connected with her through you. So yes, she's awesome. I keep trying to get her to open up a a gym here in Indianapolis. I'm like, say the word and I will run your studio here in Indy because we need those everywhere with the, with the wall, her wall of smash scales. It's like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. (laughs) Oh, and I love that. She's, we can read about Abby here for a second. I love that she's been posting like what I gained, gained confidence, gained like, oh, I love that. So yes, so good. But that idea of joyful movement, like you were asking about how we deal with the negative thoughts. That's actually one of the ways that why I incorporate, try to incorporate joyful movement in the beginning stages, even of trauma treatment is because it's one of the quickest ways to access changing those negative thoughts. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because if I start walking and I'm feeling good walking and I'm focusing on my breath or I'm focusing on the trees that I see, you know, I'm thinking of this walkway path that I do not far from my house, my thought process starts changing and it it shifts from some of that negative thought to a more mindful being in the present moment thought process. So yeah, as we're working with therapists, I'm really trying to help therapists that I supervise look at how even physical activity can help aid with the processing things differently. And if you start to notice that, oh, I walked a mile longer today, or I walked five minutes longer than I did yesterday, that's a confidence booster. Mm -hmm. You know, I can take that confidence booster and translate that into other areas of your life that are harder for you to do that thinking process. So I like to incorporate joyful movement in the very beginning stages because I can, it helps them believe it more quickly than me trying to convince them that writing a journal and doing a gratitude journal is going to help. So mm-hmm. that's one way I try to use it in processing difficult situations. Yeah. Reflecting on those situations or experiences where you do have more of that positive mindset, where you are able to easier 
connect with your body. I love that as an example of ways to kind of boost your own confidence of like, well, if I can do it in this area, I can take what I learn here and translate it into other areas. Yeah. Yeah. Lindy, this has been such a great conversation and, you know, I'm so glad that we had you on the, on the show because I think a lot of people think, well, I'm either in therapy or I'm working with a dietitian doing non-diet work and the two are independent, but I hope people are recognizing just through this conversation that really, I, I really encourage people to do both together. Because yeah. if you can find somebody like you, Lindy, as well as somebody like myself, that you're, you're going to have just so much, you know, I don't want to say faster progress because I hate to put a time frame to it, but I just imagine, oh my gosh, if I had two experts kind of in these individual fields to help me in what I went through, wow, how much uh, easy, I don't even want to say easier. It's hard to put into words, not easier, not faster, but maybe smoother uh, experience yeah. it would have been, you know, on, on that journey and recognize sometimes it can be more transformative and thank you more holistic. <laughs> yes. That would be a good way to put it. Absolutely. Well, we love to wrap up our shows first. First, I want to tell us where our listeners can find you. Where can they connect with you if they want to learn more? Yeah. So um, my Instagram is at mind and strength, which is the name of my private and coaching practice. Same Facebook and my email is lbarnard at mymindmystrength.com and my website is mymindmystrengths.com because the goal is to help you find your my mind and my strength. I love that. We'll definitely link, we'll link to all those in the show notes as well. And as we wrap up, just share with us, what is the best thing that's happened to you this week? The first week of launching my own private practice. <laughs> That's so exciting. So exciting. It's very exciting. It's been a long time in the making and all everything finally aligned right. So it's the first week of being my on my own. It's been really fun and exciting. Congratulations. Well, we're we're happy that we could be a part of launching off for you. We wish you, you know, so much success and man, put your seatbelt on because Private practice is a, is a roller coaster for sure, but we will have to have you back on in, in a year to tell us, you know, all the things that you learned and how that resiliency tapped in uh, throughout your journey as well. That'd be awesome. Thanks so much, Katie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fit Friends Happy Hour. If you liked this episode, don't forget to share it with a friend. You can subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Fit Friends Happy Hour. Talk to you next time.